Hey, good morning, Watermark. Um, my name is Aaron Ross. I am really glad to be with you today to uh, to be able to kind of speak to you, even if in, in this venue, in this uh, electronic setting, um, and, to, and to bring a message to you today about something that I think might be a bit strange, a bit weird, a bit hard, but something that I think our church uh, the church at large, the church in America needs and, and, and often mis, misheard or misread or maybe even kind of ignored passage of scripture. Uh, you know, as, as a Pentecostal, I'm always really excited that Tommy is now going through the book of Acts. Uh, for, for us as Pentecostals, that can often be called a canon inside the canon, which really just means the book of Acts takes a prominent place for Pentecostals. It's the way that we see in which God is engaging with the world and what that looks like for us as Christians to engage with the world as well. But when Tommy and I were talking about having me uh, speak today, um, I, I felt inclined to go and grab a passage from the Old Testament. And it's, it's odd, it's weird. I'm not really an Old Testament scholar. I really do theology. I, I'm trained in kind of theological thinking, especially through Paul, so some New Testament theology. So diving into the book of Amos is weird for me. It's, it can be kind of odd. And yet, I think that this passage has something so important for us that it's it's really good to kind of ponder. It's a really tough text and it, it has a lot of violent language. It has a lot of condemnation and overall it's got this sense of justice. Overall, it's the sense of the reality of what God, uh, is, is doing, especially at the time and how God's going to overcome in the future. And both of those things are a tension that we're stuck in. And so our passage today that we're going to be going through is Amos. It's found in Amos chapter 5, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 17. It's a bit of a longer passage, but there's a reason that we have to go through the entire section. It's, it's not quite so simple to grab one little part out of this because the whole thing is interconnected. And so here we go. I'm going to go ahead and read it. It'll be up on the screen so you can kind of read along. But here it is, verses 1 through 17 in Amos chapter 5. It says this, Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. And your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not go to Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkness into day, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. 
With a binding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, you have built stone mansions. You will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God Almighty says. There will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all of the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Let's take a moment and pray. God, we thank you for uh, this time that we have to gather, even if gathering means being uh, separated at a time to be physically distanced, that we're still gathered together to hear your words, to hear what you might be saying to the world today. And we do this as our duty as people who are caring for others, who are taking care of other people in the midst of a pandemic. So we, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that you might be speaking to us through the prophet Amos today. Amen. Uh, I I know what you might be thinking and you're kind of like, what the heck, right? Like this is a tough passage. Where is there any comfort? Where is there any peace? Where do we go from here? This just seems like an angry text. And to some degree, it is an angry text. But we do have to start from the beginning. When we talk about a prophetic book, such as the book of Amos, we have to recognize a lot of different elements that are at play. One of the first things we have to recognize, and, and I've said this before to our Watermark community, but I want to kind of say it again, is that this is a prophetic text, and that word prophetic can be a, a strange word. Um, I know that sometimes we have kind of Harry Potter visions of prophecy and a crystal ball and telling of the future, or we might go to other passages like in Isaiah that talk about the idea of the Messiah and who the Messiah will be. And we think of it as something about telling the future. But in reality, a lot of the prophetic texts that we find in the Old Testament are doing something different. Whereas telling the future can be this word called foretelling, uh, what really can be happening here is this thing called forthtelling. And this is a forth-telling text. Amos, throughout all of his letter, is doing something called forth-telling. He's calling the people of Israel out and saying that you're not living up to what you are supposed to be. In fact, you are being anything other than what you are supposed to be. And if you don't shape up, things are not going to go well for you. Like If you don't actually live out this covenant relationship with God things are not going to go well for you. And Amos is an interesting character because he's a a prophet in the 8th century BCE. And and he uh, he wasn't some kind of 
as far as we know, super trained person in the in the Torah. He's 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 actually a shepherd and a fig tree farmer from this place called Tekoa. And Tekoa is an interesting area because it's actually right on the border of another important thing we have to know for this passage is right on the border between Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And by the time that Amos is on the scene, you know, Israel that was kind of made to be the Israel that we often think about was split into two after uh, David and Solomon's time. David kind of coalesced the kingdom together. And after Solomon, uh, some fighting, some infighting happens and the two kingdoms are split and we have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And, and Amos was this fig tree farmer that kind of lived on the Judah side, but kind of right next to the border. And, and Amos hears this call of God to speak this message to Israel. And he does so in a really fascinating way. There are two unique things with the book of Amos that we have to have in our heads as we go on to try and understand what can we grab from this passage for us today. The first is this. It is, as we talked about, it's the prophetic text, uh, but he uses this really interesting kind of way of rhetoric, like things that they would not have expected. And so if you can imagine, if you can imagine Amos as he's, as he's proclaiming this prophecy, if you go and read the very first chapter of Amos, you'll notice that actually the first thing that he does is he declares judgment on all of Israel's neighbors. And so uh, at the beginning, uh, first chapter and into the second chapter, the Lord declares judgment on Damascus, on Gaza, on Tyre, on Edom, on Ammon, on Moab, and even Judah, even the place that Amos is from, God is declaring judgment. And he uses this phrase, which is an interesting phrase, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. Like th there's, there's so much wrong with all of these surrounding uh, partners, these neighbors of, of Israel. And if you're an Israelite person, you might at the beginning of Amos's prophetic proclamation go, heck yeah, God, like get them, get Damascus, get Gaza, get Tyre, get, get them all. Like, hey, those are our enemies. We don't want to have anything to do with them. God's going to overthrow them. Yes, like this is going well for us. But then we get to halfway through chapter two and Amos turns, turns the tide and he says now to Israel, right? Like Israel is getting its own prophetic judgment against it. And, and this would be a, a lesson, a hard lesson to hear. If you're imagining God to go out and declare prophetic judgment against these other nations, you might have this tendency to feel righteous in and of yourself, to go, ah, God's doing this against those people, so he must really like us, right? If he's going against our enemies, he must care for us. And the second thing that Amos does is he uses this phrase that would have almost reiterated that idea. Throughout the book of Amos, throughout this prophetic letter, we hear this phrase called the day of the Lord. 
And even now, if I say the day of the Lord, there might be a lot of people who would take that phrase, the day of the Lord, and think of it as a good day, as like, ah, oh, the day of the Lord. That must be a great day. Maybe in our modern churches, we might think of God, of Jesus returning and saying, like, this is when Jesus is coming back. We might kind of load that statement up with a lot of ideas. And so would they have. They would have taken the day of the Lord to mean something good for them. The day when God vindicates uh, vindicates himself amongst the nation. The day that Israel is made kind of prime and made part to be the kingdom, the place. This is a special day of of blessing in some sense. And yet Amos flips the script. The day of the Lord is going to be terrifying. And terrifying for a certain reason. And, and just a few verses after our section, if you, if you have your Bibles and you kind of read a little bit further, you'll hear what Amos says the day of the Lord is going to be like. He says it like this. He says, the day of the Lord will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house, a place that's supposed to be of safety and of refuge, and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake him. The day of the Lord is not going to be a day that they're expecting, that Israel thinks is going to be a good day. But this doesn't have to do with the fact that the day of the Lord is a bad day. It has to do with the fact that the people of Israel have failed to be the true covenant people of God. Um, they failed to live up to this covenant that God has put with them. And this is kind of where we meet this chapter five. And chapter five is a lament. And it's also this thing called a dirge. And a dirge is a song for the dead. And, and that's a funny phrase, right? Like it's a song for the dead. It's, it's, it's this mourning and weeping song. And it starts right from the beginning, But the second thing that we actually have to know, I guess technically now we're at three, that we have to know to understand this passage well, is that this passage is considered a chiasm. Now, Tommy's talked about chiasms before, and and so have I at Watermark, actually, because it's it's almost a common tool used in scripture, but not very common in uh, today's literature. And as you'll see here on the screen, this is a chiastic structure a a chiastic writing that Amos is doing to actually make a point. And so if you see here, while it's kind of there, in in chapter 5, we have an introduction to this dirge or this lament. But then verse 3 is paired with verses 16 through 17, and it's the actual lamentation. Uh, Verses 4 through 6 are paired uh, with verses 14 through 15 as an exhortation, as almost as if a... um, a exhorting them or encouraging them towards something. In verses 7 and 10 through 13, there is this accusation and a judgment proclaimed over the people of Israel. And then in the middle, smack dab in the middle, in verses 8 through 9, we get to this thing that's a hymn. It's a really interesting hymn, and it's a declaration of who this covenantal God of Yahweh is to the people. And if they would just listen, they would get the picture. 
And so when we go to the top and when we understand this idea of, of the dirge, let's kind of go there. We're going to run through some of this so I can get to what I think Amos might be speaking to our church today, or, or God might be speaking through Amos to our church today. And I just mean our church at large. In verse 2, Amos uh Amos kind of starts by proclaiming a word of the Lord and says, Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. It's an interesting phrase to call Israel a virgin, right? Virgin Israel. And really this picture is actually pointing to the reality that Israel has yet to live up to the idea of what it was supposed to be. Israel never came into fruition what Israel, the purpose of Israel, the covenantal purpose, uh, was supposed to be. In some sense, it's like saying in today's day and age, oh, that person, they, they died in their prime, or, or they died too young, or they died before they really could kind of complete their, their life's goal or their task. And this is exactly what... Uh, what kind of the proclamation of Israel is. Israel is cut down before it could ever come to fruition. But why? Why did? What was the, what was the problem, right? And, and in the lamenting section in verse 3, we start to get a picture of something that's gone awry. It says this, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And your town that marches out a hundred strong will have ten left. This is a picture of, of the idea of the successes of the king, uh, who's the king at the time in the northern kingdom. His name is Jeroboam and he is the second of the Jeroboams. And Jeroboam was not a good king. Jeroboam, as we will recount in, in the book of Kings, he, he was successful in his conquests. He was successful in, in, in money and in, in power, but he also turned the people to idolatry. He turned the people back uh, away from God yet again. And, and almost as if the kings say, and even worse than his forefathers, he was even worse than the rest of them. And if they think, if the people of Israel think that they're going to be saved by their own military strength, the, the lament starts with, you can't even trust your, your military strength or your power. The very thing that's maybe caused you to be so rich, one of the things that's caused you to be so rich, how you've used this military to grow or to take from others, this is not going to do you any good any longer. You cannot, from the very beginning of this lamentation, from the very beginning of the Song of the Dead, you cannot save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. So then what do we do? So in, in verses uh, 4 through 6 and paired to verses, uh, to verses 14 through 15, we see this going through four through six. It says, this is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Right. So there is this all of a sudden a change. Don't care about your military. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will 
sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. This is the kind of the change. Don't think about yourself, but seek. Don't think about what you could possibly do. Just seek God, seek Yahweh, seek the covenantal God who's made the covenant with Israel and live. And, and he pairs these kind of certain places, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. And this would have been very known to the people who heard this prophecy because each of them have unique, they're unique places of worship. Um, Bethel was turned into a royal sanctuary. And so Jeroboam I, this other king, had turned this place into a royal sanctuary, into a place where the royal king, the the king, would actually go and find sanctuary, whether it was to worship God or to just have a life of luxury. It was a place for them to go. And so this would also become a place of worship for the people of Israel, a place where they would also find themselves worshiping. Uh, Gilgal was a place of worship that had memorialized the conquest of Israel. And so thinking back to the conquests of Joshua and actually taking over Israel, um, this was a place that was set up to memorialize that conquest. And so often people would go to worship there, especially in times of military struggle. Beersheba was in Judah, and so it was actually a place of maybe pilgrimage for the Israelites to go into Beersheba, but it was a place believed to be where Jacob had worshipped, where one of their forefathers had worshipped, and so it became a unique place to go and worship, and yet God declares, do not go to these places. These are not where you're going to find me. You're not going, worshiping at these places is not going to do you any good. Nor does, oddly enough, God say anything about the temple or, or Jerusalem. It, it's nondescript. It's not even mentioned. Oddly enough, these are the three that would have been very kind of personal and private to the people of Israel. Now, when we talk about this, we, we also kind of see this reiterated in the chiastic structure in verses 14 and 15, where now we actually see Amos saying something, right? So Amos speaks in verse 6, but he also speaks in verse 14 and 15. And he makes this proclamation, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. Then he'll be with you, uh, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. He compares the Israelites' attitudes with what is actually true. In verse 14, it says, Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. In so many ways, Amos is proclaiming, God is not with you, though you proclaim that he is. You think that he is because you have military strength, you have economic prowess. You have all the trappings of the world that you think that would indicate that God is with you, but God is not with you. He's not in your places of worship. He is not near. And so he gives this exhortation, hate evil, but love good. Maintain justice in the courts. In order to understand this portion, this exhortation of the chiasm, we have to go one step in. And this is the problem. This is the problem of of Israel and what they're actually struggling with. And so we get verse 7 that's kind of paired with verses um, 
11 through 13. And I'm sorry, verses 10 through 13. Uh, And we get this kind of uh, thing. Starting in verse 7, we hear this. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. In verse um, 10 through 13, we, we hear something similar. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. There is an issue happening in Israel where they've stopped caring about these two often misunderstood words, justice and righteousness. Justice in, in its ancient context is maybe a bit similar to our context today, but justice has this idea of, of legal matters. There is a problem with their legal structure in the fact that their legal structure has failed to defend certain people. It's failed to care for people who need to be cared for. Righteousness, this word that can often kind of be paired with an idea of self-righteousness or being holier than thou, actually has more to do with personal relationship. How are persons working together in a morally and good way? How are they treating, are they being right to each other uh, in morally good ways? Have they upheld kind of social standards when we're talking about the Old Testament text? Have they upheld kind of the social standards of morality against or, or with each other? And Amos goes on in verse 11 to say, no. And what was the problem here? Well, the problem was this. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on the grain. This passage has so much to do. Amos's prophetic text is not just a carte blanche to Israel as a whole, but he's starting to speak out against those who have the problem. Those who have the problem are those who have power, those who have money, those who are in charge like Jeroboam II. These are the ones that the prophetic declaration has come out of. And he goes on to say this, therefore, you, uh, though you have built the stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Amos is painting a picture of what's really happening. They've built their mansions on the backs of the money of those who they've kind of forced oppression upon, the poor and the widow and the orphan, these things that we often kind of pair together in the biblical text. Those who are downtrodden are being pushed down even further. There, uh, it's, it's this picture that Amos is saying that the reality, the things that have gone wrong in this space is the fact that these people uh, are are taking advantage of the other. And, and worse, there are those who also don't speak up. There are those who don't actually do anything when we see the injustices, but we allow the injustice to keep going. But then we get to this hymn, and in verses 8 and 9, we get to the point. And we get to what Amos is trying to get the people to remember. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkness into day, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name or Yahweh, because this word Lord here, of course, is referring to Yahweh. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. 
Amos is reminding the people of the person of God, of the person of Yahweh, this covenantal God who who is a God who is in control, who actually is the one who created all this hearkening back to the Torah in Genesis 1, the one who creates, the one who's created the heavens and the earth, the one who separates the water from the land. This this is Yahweh, and this Yahweh is the one who is going to be in control. There's a, a famous psalm in, in Psalm 103.8. We, we kind of have probably heard this before, but it was, an, it was a cry of, of ancient Israel at a time to say something like this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The picture that Amos is trying to paint for the people of Israel is that this is the Yahweh, that if they would just seek him, they would live, that perhaps Yahweh would be gracious with them if they would simply seek him. This is the God of it. This is the covenant God, the God who, even though Israel fails, is always faithful, even when Israel isn't faithful. Now, there's a couple issues that we have to deal with in this passage. The first one is what do we do with the fact that God seems to be doing some violence, right? In verse, uh, when we get to the ends there, that last little portion in verses 16 and 17, we see this idea that Yahweh is going to be passing through their midst and there's going to be weeping and wailing and, and it's going to be a terrible moment. This is the picture that we often find in a lot of the Old Testament text. What happens isn't so much that God is the one who is causing the pain and the anguish, but God is giving him, uh, giving the people up to themselves. If this is who you want to be, if you want to be people who don't care for the poor, who, who are selfish, who are violent, then I'm going to give you up to your own passions and it's going to go wrong with you. In other parts of Amos, it talks about this idea that others, and, and we'll know these to be the Assyrians, are going to come and conquer them and destroy them, and it's no one can escape the wrath. But it wasn't because God himself is going to be destroying them, but rather it's this picture that he's giving them up to their own passions and desires. And the Assyrians are being given up to their own passions and desires. And what happens when people do this is destruction, and it's not good. But if we seek God, if we seek Yahweh, then then hopefully we can break this cycle. This is where we, when we read the Old Testament, we do something. There's a, a theologian, his name is Greg Boyd, and he calls it a cruciform reading of scripture, especially some of these harder old texts. In which case we say, where do we see Jesus in light of this passage? How does Jesus break this cycle? And this is the beautiful reality of Jesus, is that God is the one in the person of Jesus who takes the violence, who breaks that cycle. If, if Israel was being this group of people, if Israel was being the one who would actually uh, use this violence against the poor who would actually pour out wrath against those who have less than and build their empire on the backs of others, then God's going to give themselves up to that. And because of that, people are going to conquer them because those people have already given themselves up to that. God is not giving them a pass. But in the person of Christ, we actually see God taking that violence upon himself. 
The violence, the structures of violence that have been created of this cycle of constantly being violent towards another person, God had to defeat once and for all. And the way to defeat that was to take that violence upon God's self, to be the one that we could pour out our wrath on. I I think when we think about the church today, something that we have to recognize from this text is that often we can be the kind, we can be like the Israelites in the reality that we can actually be the ones to oppress others. We can be the ones to, to take, to, to oppress others for our own personal gain. That's that each of us in our own way have actually been the people who have oppressed people. Some people might be saying, well, I'm not, you know, a person in power. I, I may not be the head of my company. I may not be and leadership anywhere. But so very often that kind of oppression actually comes by the way that we just treat others by the fact that we as people can often be angry and, and mad. And we can, we can point just like the Israelites, at the beginning of Amos, we could point to all of our neighbors and say, look, God, look at them. Look at those who need to be taken out. And we can cheer when others get taken out. But if the story of Amos, if the prophetic text of Amos tells us anything, if that's going to happen to those around us who are being violent, then, then so much so is it going to be for us. But the person of Jesus and, and this guy named Rene Girard, he talks about this thing called mimetic theory, that we as people, we needed something to pour out our wrath upon that could take our wrath once and for all. And so the person of Jesus, God incarnate, the one who becomes human, he takes on that wrath so he can break the cycle of violence so that no longer are we actually pouring out our wrath on our neighbors, but rather because of this once and for all wrath that we've poured out on God, that we can now live justly. Now we can now live peacefully and we can now actually uphold the justice in the courts and we can uphold the justice of people that we get to become like the person of Christ and take on violence so that others may be freed. This is a hard message. It's always a hard message. I think, I think of scripture, scripture can be really tough, but it, it's also really tough because if we're listening to scripture well, scripture is always calling us to be what we are supposed to be. And what we're supposed to be is like Paul talks about in Philippians chapter two, we're supposed to have the same mind as Christ. That even though Christ uh, was equal to God, he didn't see, he didn't think equality with God something to be grasped, but gave up of himself. And this is Paul's admonishment to the church at Philippi: be like Christ. And if one, of the, if we're going to be Easter people, if we're going to be people of the resurrection, if we're going to be people who are going to find ourselves resurrected with the risen Christ, that also means that we have to be people who are pre-Easter people, meaning that we also have to actually take on violence for ourselves to be resurrected from. If we're going to break the cycle uh, of violence within the world, then we have to be willing to be the ones to actually say, I am not going to pour out my wrath on others, but rather I will take on that wrath. We will seek justice. We will seek mercy. We will seek righteousness. We will still seek these things, but Violence begets violence. Pain begets pain. 
And Jesus is calling us. Amos is, is encouraging the Israelites to seek God and live, to overcome this violence that they have, they have just lived within. And so I think about uh, just a quick thing for our church today. And, and it's by no means to call out any, any church, but I think very often when we think about something like a pandemic like we're in, we all have this strong desire to get back to life as normal. We all have this strong desire to want to meet again as a church, just as I have a strong desire to meet again as the church, as the community, and be with people physically once again. But when we think about what the idea of, of being physically distant means, when we think about what the idea of being the church means, it means that sometimes we lay down those very desires, those things that we want, so that way we can help those who may not be in a place of safety and security, that I lay down my desire for actually being in a communal setting, in a church setting, physically for the protection of someone else who may be at risk. I may lay down my, my desire to go to restaurants, to go wherever and to go to the beach, to be at a party. I, you know, I just had my birthday just a few days ago and there was no big party. It was kind of like, Hey, cool. This was me. I saw a couple friends physically distant. We're good. Uh, because we have to lay down those desires for the other. This is being like Christ. I, I think today when we think about the, the story and the message of Amos, it can be really easy for us to read it and go, this seems so destructive. But what God is constantly engaging us to do is to break that cycle Break the cycle of violence. Break the cycle of choosing ourselves over the other. Breaking the cycle of building up our own little empires while oppressing other people. This is what Amos has declared to the people of Israel. And I, and I truly think it's what Amos is declaring to our own churches and our own Christian community today. Where have we, where have we gained at the expense of others? And, and where do we continually be like Christ to stand up for the other, to stand up for those who are oppressed, to stand up for those who have been the downtrodden? It's what James says, religion that is pure and religion that is true is the religion that takes care of the widow and the orphan. Watermark, I, I think in this moment, as we reflect on the words of Amos and this breaking of the, 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 the cycle of violence that we need to take communion, that we need to actually partake in the good moment of Christ himself, breaking that cycle of violence for us. And so as you reflect on the words from the prophet Amos, and as you reflect on the work of Jesus in breaking this cycle of violence, I would like you to reflect on both the bread, the body that was broken, and the wine, the, the blood that was poured out for you. And as we take communion, let us remember that in taking communion, we are ourselves actually saying that we are accepting the mission of Jesus. We're not just accepting salvation. We're not just accepting forgiveness of sins, but we ourselves are taking on the body and the blood of Christ. We ourselves are, 
are embodying the mission of Jesus to the world as agents of reconciliations, as agents of people who want to break the violence and the cycle of violence that we see around us in oppression. And so in this moment, uh, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and eat. Watermark, I'm praying for you. I'm praying God's peace over you in a turbulent time and praying that we will get to be able to be together soon. But until that time that we can remain in good community, even if we are physically distant, go in peace.